afternoon and welcome to the 105th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and COVID-19 with Vivian Shaw and Susanna Park. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 14th, 2020, there are 21,010,700 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 20,716,498. I'm sorry, I've got those numbers reversed. So the new number, 20,716,498. Of those, 5,280,315 are in the United States. That's up from 5,226,916 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 167,828 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 166,623 reported yesterday, yet another day with more than a thousand deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline, hundreds of anti-Asian American hate incidents reported in California during the pandemic. This appeared in the Mercury News July 1st by Leonardo Castaneda. An Asian American resident walking their dog in Santa Clara was approached by a stranger who kicked the dog, spat on the owner, and told the victim to take your disease that's ruining our country and go home. In San Jose, an Asian American family was yelled at by a neighbor who started a physical altercation after using racial epithets. And in San Francisco, a man elbowed an Asian American customer in the back at a hardware store, telling the victim to go back to China and accusing them of bringing that Chinese virus over here. Those are some of the 832 incidents of hate, harassment, and discrimination against Asian American and Pacific Islander Californians reported in the past 13 weeks to Stop AAPI Hate, a coalition of advocacy organizations formed to track racism against those communities in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. In late June, organizers shared their statewide findings in California, which included 81 incidents of physical assaults and 64 civil rights violations, such as workplace discrimination and barring Asian Americans from entering an establishment. Assemblyman David Chu, Democrat from San Francisco, said the incidents that have been reported are just the tip of the iceberg. We know that at this difficult time for all of our communities, there's not just a pandemic of health, but there's a pandemic of hate that is attacking our Asian American and Pacific Islander communities around the country, Chu said. There is not just a virus known as COVID-19, there is a virus of racism. Chu drew a line between the incidents reported during the pandemic 
and the long history of anti-Asian American racism in California and the United States, including the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, and the murder of Vincent Chin, a Chinese American auto worker in Michigan in 1982, by two white men who blamed Chin for the success of the Japanese auto industry. Chu also pointed at high profile racist attacks in the Bay Area, including videos of an older Asian American man being assaulted in San Francisco's Bayview district while he was out collecting cans. Many of the speakers at the news conference also linked the uptick in anti-Asian American incidents to President Donald Trump, who has been criticized for using racist terms for the coronavirus, including referring to it as Kung Flu at his recent campaign rally in Tulsa. We have a president that seems to have given a green light to the racists to come out of the woodwork to start attacking Asian Americans, as well as all other people of color, said Assemblyman Al Maratsuchi, Democrat from Torrance. This simply is not acceptable. Slightly more than 40% of the incidents reported to stop AAPI hate in California took place inside businesses and more than 20% took place on a public street or sidewalk. Women were more likely to be targeted. About 62% of the incidents that included the victim's gender were reported by women. Cynthia Choi, the co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action called on Governor Gavin Newsom to create a racial equity task force around COVID-19 and fund increased tracking of hate crimes against Asian Americans. There's no way that we can respond unless we understand the nature and the magnitude and extent of this, she said. Okay, I'd like to turn to the discussion today and I'm thrilled to introduce my guests. Vivian Shaw is a researcher and educator from New York. She earned her PhD in sociology from the University of Texas at Austin, my alma mater, and is currently a college fellow <laughs> in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. She teaches on Asian American culture and society, environmental inequality, social movements, and qualitative methods. She is completing a book about how the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster laid the political groundwork for the emergence of anti-discrimination social movement networks. We'll look for that. Susanna Park, my second guest, is a PhD candidate in global health at Oregon State University. She's a mixed methods researcher interested in areas of global health policy, ethics, disparities, and community-based research. Outside of academia, she is co-founder and host of a global health science communication podcast, Global Caveat, can't wait to talk about that, and has written about traveling while Asian. And find out more about her involvements on her website. So Susanna and Vivian, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thanks so much for having thank us. Thank you. Let me remind everyone, you can get your questions in on the YouTube live chat. Just put them right there in the chat. You can also get them up on Facebook Live or Periscope. You can put them on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster, or you can email them to me directly. Sometimes people like to do that. Email is sgk23 at drexel.edu. So let's jump into this conversation. And um, I'm wondering if we could just get to know each of your research background a little bit, um, how you got drawn into the work that you're doing, and then we'll use that to build on this tremendous new study that you have in the works. So. Um, Susanna, could I start with you? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Um, 
as mentioned, I am in my dissertation phase, yay. So that means um, my identity is all based on my current research. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that's, um, so right now I'm actually looking at how Native American women survivors of intimate partner violence seek support, um, what methods and what, draw, what draws them to seeking certain types. And it's really coming from an equitable access lens. So, you know, even if they do seek medical help or law enforcement um, help, what does that mean in terms of how good, good in terms of how mentally and physically healing and um, community healing, you know, all those aspects, how culturally appropriate, even that is a huge part of um, finding healing and support. And so those are the different just, um, I guess, areas that I'm looking at with my research. But broadly speaking, as you said in my introduction, I um, a lot of the work and involvements that I do with research does come from, okay, where is, uh, why is there disparity and how can we narrow that gap? And you're doing a significant amount of ethnographic work then, I suppose, to support the research? Um, or that was the plan? Uh, that's the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it was actually shifted from ethnographic to a little bit more of again, because it's mixed methods. So I do have a pretty large data set that I want to work with. And um, it was going to be pretty in-depth um, focus groups and interviews with, um, you know, the survivors, but it has posed a challenge considering the state of our world and nation specifically. So uh, my research is a little bit of on hold right now. Well, we'll, I know that's resonating with a lot of the people who are probably listening who are also doing social science research and, and had to shift their methods in midstream with a project. And I know we'll, we'll probably circle back and talk about this, but sure. um, thanks for doing that, that work. And I know it's, this time has presented with so many challenges, but we don't want to forget <laughs> the challenges presented when you put a lot of effort into imagining, describing a world using one set of tools and then all of a sudden you're like, well, we, we can't use those tools now. Let's try some other, <laughs> other tools. Yeah. Vivian, same question to you. Can you give us a little bit of your sort of intellectual background that brings you to the topics that you're working on today? Yeah, sure. You know, actually, um, I had not planned on re-entering academia after um, I had gone to college. And um, I actually worked in a number of different fields, um, you know, such as like reality TV and advertising. But I ended up in public health after I decided I kind of wanted to re-enter um, into uh, a, a professional space that, you know, brought that gave back. Right. And so I ended up working um, in public health and then returned to grad school and kind of was very motivated to think about um, social inequality. Um, I ended up being very drawn to setting disasters. And so for my uh, dissertation and now what's becoming the book, um, I was studying uh, Fukushima and the social movements that came after that. Um, before that, I was also studying Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki and looking at atomic bombings and the politics of that more broadly. So I've just kind of been very interested in um, disasters for a very long time. Um, and as part of that research, um, the story that kind of came out of my dissertation research was that of um, activists in Japan following the uh, 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, uh, establishing this kind of foundation for social movements. And then um, when hate speech kind of became a sort of bigger issue um, in 2013, two years after the, the nuclear disaster, they were able to mobilize quickly and then develop this anti-racism network, right? And so I've always been very interested in this question of um, different forms of inequality that um, 
that really become heightened after in the context of disasters. But um, you know, a lot of the sociological literature on that, you know, focus very rightfully so on some of the material consequences. So some of what I had been looking at through this book project was the cultural consequences of disasters. Mm. And so, and how is it that, for instance, thinking about inequality and attempts to broaden what citizenship means and how that can be accessible for different types of groups that have been historically marginalized, how does that kind of take shape in the context of you know post-disaster rebuilding, right, social rebuilding, and on the other side, how is it that um, different types of histories of margin marginalization and even violence, right, how does that then kind of get heightened in the context of disaster? Um, and for example, um, in the context of Japan, how that is often coming out is through this history, right, and dog whistling that happens. So, like for instance, in 1923, um, there was an earthquake in the Tokyo area. Um, and in that context, several thousand Koreans who had been living in the area were massacred, right? Because there had been a lot of rumors that got spread about them contributing to the disaster, setting businesses on fire, poisoning wells, different things like that. And what was interesting is that at the same time that you saw um, in online spaces that, um, you know, uh, ultra right wing people were, um, you know, kind of building momentum within online spaces, after in the context of disasters and in their aftermath, they often kind of use those moments to dog whistle back to this 1923 incident, even though it's you know 90 years or 100 years before, right? Hmm. Um, and so kind of saying how like, okay, this earthquake just happened recently, we need to kind of remember this history that happened, right? And so this kind of dog whistling. And so basically because of that context and because of working on this book about uh, racial politics and disasters, I had, um, you know, I was very interested when um, when uh, COVID kind of started gaining more attention and in its initial framing as something attached to Asian-ness, Asian bodies, right? And that's kind of how I became mm -hmm. interested in that. Um, and I have to say part of it, I have to give credit to one of my colleagues, uh, Shannon Cornelius, Cornelison um, at Harvard, you know, part of what's great about being in this kind of intellectual space is that you talk to people and she had seen me present my work on Fukushima and was like, you know, actually what you have been looking at for the book is kind of very much in parallel to uh, what is going on now, right? And it's funny because I had, I had no, I've been concerned about what was going on as an Asian American, but I hadn't made that connection about looking at it as a researcher, right? And so I ended up taking that jump. And the first thing that I did was I put out a call on Twitter to kind of see what types of stories were going on. Um, and I think basically the outcome of that was that there were just so many different types of stories that I realized that, um, you know, looking at just say one dimension of the disaster was not really going to cut it. There were so many different ways in which uh, people are getting affected, right? So like, for instance, there were parents who were telling me about being concerned about their kids, you know, being bullied, right? Or that they were going to the, the kids being um, coming home crying or upset because of dealing with racism. Um, but then also I, I was hearing from, um, you know, um, a gay man who went onto a dating website, right? And uh, he was called coronavirus on there, right? And so I was thinking about there are many different dimensions of this. Um, and then of course, at that same time, um, you know, more stories about essential workers, um, you know, uh, getting sick and dying and things like that also came out. And so really, it's because of the many different dimensions of this illness and how it touches many different parts of life, um, of people's lives, that we decided to make this into this kind of um, multi-sided project. Uh, I, I can't wait to hear even even more about that. There's one thing I wanted to just, you know, um, then thank you for that background. It just put a uh, undermine something you said there about that 
connections if you care to, to stretch them over a long time. That disaster memory, sometimes it, it drops out or it's obscured by other sorts of memory, but it's re it's re-engaged and re-provoked even over long distance of time. The other thing, um, I really applaud and can't wait to see your book. Um, looking at disasters, often they're, they're described as a, a lens or a window, something that sort of just gives you a deeper insight into society as it is, which I completely agree with, but also they're formative of new po- politics. And I, I think that's really crucial thing not to lose because in my in my reading of, of some of these episodes, the political forms that are created, they may be sort of temporary. They may not form a new political party. They may be interest groups that form over a relatively short period of time and emerge into other things. That doesn't mean they're not crucial. So um, can't, I'm really excited about the analytic that you're bringing to the work. I'd like to hear more about the, the big project you have underway, this study on the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Um, it's looking at labor, it's looking at racism, it's looking at um, migration. Maybe I could hear from each of you a little bit what what are the big questions that are, are drawing you to it. Susanna, could I start with you on this? Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> so our study is pretty large, I would say, and uh, we have different areas that we're trying to look at. Our big question, you know, generally speaking, is how has the pandemic affected Asian American and Pacific Islander lives? Um, and like Vivian just mentioned, I mean, there's so many different dimensions and nuances on how the pandemic is impacting the lives of AAPIs um, in the United States. And so we are embarking on this really exciting research and journey. And I would say there are two major portions or um, factors that we're looking at. Factors isn't the right word, dimensions. Um, So one is the labor and economy, and then the other is family and dynamics um, and how, what that looks like. And so with um, the labor and economy, you know, we're really exploring, okay, what, not just how their jobs are affected, but really bringing in that Asian identity and that Asian-ness, what does that mean as a person who's working in X industry and how you are experiencing the pandemic? And then with the family um, study, we're looking at, okay, well, there's a stress of the pandemic and then being in an Asian family has its different um, experience and nuances that I don't think if you're not part of that community, people generally don't understand. And so what does that look like? And then also, um, how, how are they experiencing violence if there's family violence going on? Do these families or individuals even know that they are in a home that's, that has a lot of violence um, and that they're experiencing abuse? So we're trying to look at that as well. And, you know, within that study, we're also trying to really focus on women and LGBTQ, um, because those tend to be further marginalized groups. And that's our um, two major areas, and we are approaching it both quantitatively and qualitatively. And I'll let Vivian take on the labor and economy study, because she is much more eloquent in talking about that. Sure, <laughs> I, thank I don't you know for starting us on so that. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vivian, go ahead. Tell yeah, us more. Um, yeah. And so I just also want to highlight, we do have um, six areas in total. Um, and so that came out, as I mentioned, through this sort of um, call that I had put out and uh, thinking about different areas. And so we have um, labor and economy, as uh, Susanna mentioned, family and caregiving, uh, education. Uh, let me see what else. Uh, health. 
community organizing and online spaces. But of course, you know, these are not necessarily discrete areas, they overlap. And so in focusing on labor and family, um, these are, we expect that a lot of these questions that we have for these other areas are also going to be part of that. Um, and also it's interesting that we just submitted a very large grant that it would be great to um, get funded, uh, knock on wood. Um, and the way that we framed it was looking at um, Asian American, um, how COVID is affecting Asian American, Pacific Islander and Asian immigrant life, both at work and at home, right? And so that's kind of how we're framing this juxtaposition, but there's obviously overlap, right? Um, and so I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a snapshot because I think it's kind of maybe difficult to just, um, you know, try to cover everything. But, you know, for instance, I'll talk about the labor study. So really what we're trying to do is um, we want to capture um, both what is sort of, um, characteristic of the demographic as a whole, right? And so like, for instance, there's some research showing after 9-11 that um, Asian Americans had a difficult time re-entering the job market because they're compared to white Americans because their social networks were not as robust and large and you know they kind of did not have that benefit. So we're trying to look at what affects Asian Americans as a whole, but then also what is particular to different communities within AAPI, right? And we really want to pay attention and highlight the fact that it's very important to disaggregate our data because the experiences of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are not at all uniform. And oftentimes, in fact, when we don't disaggregate this data, a lot of um, you know what the information that describes certain communities then gets generalized for everybody, and then you know the specificity of you know which types of communities need even more support gets lost, right? So just to kind of give you a very concrete example of that, um, just income, for instance, we can look at that. So if you look at um, AAPI income, the median income is about like maybe seventy thousand dollars a year, right? Uh, when you look at that, when you disaggregate that. Based and ethnicity. You have Indian Americans at about $100,000, and then I be believe Bangladeshi at about $41,000. So that's like a huge, um, that's a huge difference, right? That's a huge um, spectrum. And then the median is 70K, right? And so this is kind of, is for these reasons that we need to look at things. And then when we think about what constitutes the ways in which um, Asian American and Pacific Islanders experience um, work and how that's been affected by COVID, it is also related to uh, some of the ethnic um, trends in terms of which groups are involved in different types of industries, right? Uh, so for instance, mm -hmm. we know, of course, that, um, you know, Filipino communities, and that's also gendered, right? Uh, Filipino Americans are often working in the healthcare sector as nurses, right? And there's been a lot of research on why is it that Filipinos often end up in the US, but also not in the US, like even in Japan and Singapore and different types of places, why is it that this particular population often ends up doing care work, right? And so that is kind of part of the story in terms of exposure. Another case that we are looking at um, is workers in meatpacking industries, right? Um, so, you know, you would probably very rarely would you see, you know, um, you know, uh, East Asian Americans who have attained, say, like a bachelor's or master's working in a meatpacking industry. This is very socioeconomic and also very ethnicized, right? Um, and so some of the groups that are hit hardest are Marshallese in Arkansas, which make up a very, very large part of, um, you know, the uh, population of people who work at meatpacking industries in this particular area, Springdale, Arkansas. Um, and within this area, I think make up maybe like 50% of COVID cases, even though um, in within the state, they are only maybe like 3% of the population, right? So a huge disparity. Um, and then also Southeast Asians. And some of the cases that um, of 
uh, meatpacking workers of those who had died were Southeast Asian, right? And so we're trying to tease out these particularities to think about what are the different types of industries that different um, Asian ethnic groups are involved in um, and how does that kind of shape things? I would say like a little bit more. Um, so um, as far as some other ways that we're kind of thinking about um, different industries and so, sorry, just to kind of mention. So um, we are looking at different categories within work, right? So for instance, um, you know, essential working, um, healthcare work, um, uh, workers who maybe are on a salary and have greater flexibility as far as where they can be located. We're also looking at sex workers. So just kind of a range. Um, I'm not going to list every single category, but um, we're trying to cover many different types of experiences. And part of that is also to consider different types of risks, right? And different types of negotiations of risk and defining of risk that, that are related to these industries. And so one um, story that I think, there may be two stories I wanna share that kind of um, really have stayed with me. So the first one I'll share is mm -hmm. of an Asian American sex worker. And what was very interesting was that, um, of course, you know, um, a club space is going to be very, um, you know, is going to be a space in which transmission of the virus will be uh, pretty easy, right? Um, and so the, the club closed and she ended up, um, you know, uh, starting to uh, do work, sex work online. And it, what's interesting is that through that transition, right? Through going online and protecting herself biologically, she then actually opened herself up to different types of risks because then her identity was at risk of being exposed, right? Um, and so she's kind of gone through different ways of negotiating this, such as like hiding her face. But then there's a financial issue because when you hide your face, you're less likely to kind of generate more income, right? So there's a cost to that. And so these are the different types of risks and different types of dimensions by which people are balancing, you know, protecting themselves and also make still being able to kind of continue their incomes and things like that. The other case I would mention, um, is um, a Chinese American um, healthcare worker who works with um, who works with uh, women who are about to give birth, and she works in you know an ethnic enclave, a Chinese um, um, kind of area in a major city. And um, what was very interesting is that you know she part of what is frustrating for her is actually is is how she feels that she's not providing a, you know a great quality of care anymore, right? And how, for instance, you know COVID has shaped how. Um, you know, people who are pregnant can give birth, right? Because in some uh, cases, and this is, you know, not really still going on, but for a couple of weeks, uh, certain places did not allow, um, you know, pregnant people to bring their partners into the delivery room, right? And so this is kind of, so a lot of the patients would then flee to different states and this would disrupt, you know, quality of care. So I think that we also have to think about job satisfaction, right? It's not, it's risk sure. and it's kind of how people are trying to protect themselves, but then also how this is shaping how people feel about their work too. Yeah, I know I've been going on for very long, so I'll stop there. No, that's that's wonderful. And thank you for these descriptions. I just want to remind everybody listening to COVID calls and talking with Vivian Shaw and Susanna Park about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're getting some insights into this big research study that they've embarked upon. I just wanted to, um, let me follow up a little bit and either one of you can, can take this. As you talked about disaggregating um, you know, sort of getting into regional issues, occupational issues, identity issues. I mean, obviously that's crucial so that we don't essentialize what Asian, the Asian American experience as if it's one thing in America. But within that, I, in your discussion, I thought it was really interesting that you did move back and forth between some factors having to do with, let's say, uh, 
the nature of a particular industry, highly skilled or, or not as skilled, um, also region. And then I'm also wondering what role um, the size of the community itself might, might play. So if you have a recently arrived immigrant um, Asian American community that might be relatively small versus the impacts of COVID-19 in communities that may be of long-standing, 100 years or, or more. So can you just say a little bit more when you have to make these kind of decisions, which end up being crucial data collecting decisions about where you draw those lines, how you do that kind of work? Either, either do, of you. Do you want to take yeah, I, yeah I can take it and then maybe Susanna can add on to that. Um, so I think they're, they're um, so I'm, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher with an ethnographic background. So I'm a little bit like, um, like I maybe how I speak is stream of consciousness. And so how I think is maybe also stream of consciousness. So I feel like the discrete um, <laughs> boundaries and categories that often you might associate with like a sociologist, it does not describe me as well. And so um, definitely, you know, we're trying to define certain categories, but we're not necessarily um, envisioning this particular project in terms of, you know, we want to have X number of people in this state, we want X number and X number of people, you know, in this area. And we actually kind of, I know that like we had, a, we got reviews for an application recently. And one of the questions was, you know, like, how are you capturing diversity within these subgroups? Are you going to say, for instance, with healthcare, you want to look at, you know, 10 Filipina uh, nurses, uh, mm -hmm. you know, five Indian American doctors, you know, things like that. And for us, I don't think we're necessarily trying to make that type of explanation. I think we we are trying to disaggregate um, so that our study can be inclusive of broader AAPI, um, you know, communities, right? Because very often a lot of these studies just tend to be focused on one or two ethnicities, if that, which is already very ambitious uh, and that's not to yeah. kind of dismiss them. But I think we just want to get kind of a broad stretch of that. But we're not necessarily thinking about um, the, how we kind of identify these um, populations in the sort of quantitative sense. Um, and I think that definitely when we think about communities, um, this is part of our question because, um, you know, one of our areas that we're looking at is how AAPI businesses are being affected. Um, and so there's actually a lot of literature um, within sociology and other social sciences about ethnic enclaves and how different types of communities use ethnic capital, right? Um, relationships with each other based on their shared ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. How they right. leverage that in order to, um, generate income or to generate resources. And so we are curious about how is it that that plays um, a factor in this process of economic recovery or not e maybe even if not recovery, a sort of protective approach to try to um, you know, uh, withstand the disaster. If you look at research on Hurricane Katrina, um, you see how churches played a very important role for say Filipino Americans and Vietnamese Americans to get, to get resources. So community-based orga organizations are a big part of their um, our study, and that's why we have the community organizing um, angle to that. Um, and just to kind of speak a little bit more about community, I think something that um, is very important to us, and I think Susanna can also talk about this because, you know, she is doing research with indigenous communities on a very sensitive topic. Um, it's very important for us as qualitative researchers, uh, not all of us are, we also have a survey to do, um, but for those who are kind of involved with the qualitative study, it's very important for us to be reflexive and also uh, to be very forthright in the fact that we are a feminist uh, project that is driven by community accountability. Um, and so one of the issues that we noticed when we first started was, you know, and part and how we kind of started is very organic. I reached out to people who I knew, some people reached out to me. 
And then as we established, we were like, wait a second, we're called the AAPI project, but we don't have any of the PI. We don't have Pacific Islanders. And um, that's been an issue, right? And so actually, you know, um, uh, someone reached out to me and we had been talking and she said, you know, that is like a dimension that from even from your website, I can see is missing. And, you know, I mentioned, yeah, we, we definitely want to like form an advisory board and also uh, get in touch with different communities because um, it is problematic to say, uh, try to do outreach with communities that say are already strapped, right? So communities of Marshallese essential workers. It is problematic for us to go into that space without a certain type of permission and to, um, you know, overload people who are already overloaded, who are already kind of at risk, right? And so that's why community partnerships and developing these relationships with um, groups and organizations that have um, these existing relationships that can help us. Um, and recently, something that was very exciting was an undergraduate um, got in touch with me, and she's at Harvard, and her family um, is actually Laotian American, and many of them work um, at a meatpacking plant in her community. And so she wanted to talk to people who are working with her father and uncle, right? And so we were like, yeah, let's you know bring you on. Um, and so I think we're, we're very much trying to form these collaborations. And it's very refreshing because I think academia very frequently is very averse to um, collaboration, um, can be very territorial. And I think that is kind of, um, it's a relief in some ways because we're able to engage with this aspect of, um, you know, our priorities and values that are oriented towards social justice and are not necessarily um, kind of as tied up in rat race that often can be problematic when you're claiming to do research on social inequality, right? And so that, I think that forming relationships and recognizing how, you know, where our weaknesses are and what types of relationships we need to form is very much part of how we kind of get to thinking about the community piece. Susanna, let me bring you in on that. On, on, sure. and we were talking about research design, but also about some of these challenges of the reflexivity of the social science researcher in saying, well, do we have the right people? Do we have all of the people we need? And then how you establish these uh, relationships with communities as you ask what are very intimate and difficult questions yeah. to ask and expect to get yeah. an answer. Yeah, I think there is a definite and we should acknowledge that our research, uh, as big and ambitious as it is, it's not perfect in the sense that we cannot represent every single Asian American and Pacific Islander community. And I, you know, I hope that we can get there someday. But we, I think, recognize that um, it'll take a lot more than just us doing that. We will need a lot of community collaboration. And you know, Vivian, you said that beautifully. And I think in terms of the study design, no acknowledging that is a challenge. But I don't think that should make us shy away from our approach either. Um, yes, we don't have like, okay, we're gonna go for X Indian Americans, X Korean Americans, X, you know, and doing that, I also don't right. think that's very realistic at this point. <laughs> um, and I think there is a real beauty in mixed methods research and that we can take whatever quantitative that data that we get or qualitative data and we can put it in a, a, a different context or we can get a more uh, a wider perspective or view of what is going on um, with the with the situation and you know i think a lot of people who are more quantitatively minded might say well then how can you generalize this to the larger aapi community and i think we want to be very clear that we're not claiming to generalize and i don't and that's not our goal either we're not going to say well because of this research we've interviewed x number of people this is the aapi experience with the pandemic right. i think our really 
our primary goal is, look, our community is extremely diverse. So many nuances that even I don't understand beyond my own community. Um, but look at how diverse and look at how our lives are being affected by this pandemic that is so different and challenging. Um, and sometimes maybe not challenging for some folks for whatever reason. And so that's, you know, that's the study design perspective. And also, you know, the community collaboration. I love that so much because that is, um, I think that's how academia should be. I think that collaboration is what makes social science thrive. And I think it is what makes studies like this thrive because I think uh, academia, and especially for someone who's in global health, um, the history of how we've done research is very extractive. You know, anthropology or sociology, even public health, we're like, oh, look at this very uncivilized community who has built pyramids <laughs> and has done so many amazing things within their own, um, you know, like communities that they've built. But, you know, we've had outside people come in and be like, wow, they're so uncivilized and let's let's write a book about them and make them sound like they're this alien type of people that don't know how to you know, live out throughout the world. So I think our approach is very collaborative and I'm, um, I'm looking forward to like other collaborations that may come about as we organically keep moving forward and you know, gather more stories and learn more about the experiences of AAPIs. Just reminding people you're listening to COVID Calls. We're having a conversation about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the pandemic with Susanna Park and Vivian Shaw. Um, Susanna, let me stay with you. Um, and I really do appreciate what you're what you're saying there about sort of the um, keeping the a humble attitude um, in doing this this work that you're not creating some meta level explanatory device for the entire Asian American. Pacific Islander experience of COVID-19, but it's probably the granularity of that that to me as a historian also gives it true value. It is the value of those narratives and experiences that stand in for things that ultimately probably cannot be, um, I'm gonna make some people unhappy when I say this, but not everything can be quantified. And, and let me come to that because um, I think that there may be a, a case in which Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have come in for quite specific harm in these past few months, and it has to do with racism. And it doesn't come to surprise anyone's surprise, or it shouldn't at this point, that the Trump administration itself has leveraged racism, even in the way it talks about the coronavirus, which has to mm -hmm. be having very broadly felt impacts across the Asian American community. Can you talk more to that? How is that harm being felt? I mean, the article I read, you know, talked about physical harm, but mm -hmm. there's many kinds of harm, discrimination, trauma. Sure. I worry particularly about children and elders at this time. I worry about people who live in communities of long standing who have felt very comfortable in the communities. And then all of a sudden they turn on the TV one day and the president of the United States is naming a global pandemic after their grandparents' homeland, perhaps. And they, you know, there's so many angles to this. I wonder if we can talk about sure. that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that this pandemic, and maybe folks have seen articles come out early on about how this is 
a pandemic where it's traumatic. And so even though it doesn't feel like this very in your face trauma where you see something really violent um, in front of you, the collective experience of us going through this pandemic is a trauma in itself. And I think for APIs, and I can only really speak for my personal experience, you know, 100% is there's this secondary trauma of seeing news after news after news of people in my community being abused and harmed, um, called racial slurs day after day. And I think for me, you know, the first month or so was very difficult because I'm consuming so much of this. And then there's this weird break in the in my world and then other folks who aren't from my community and who don't necessarily have it, a Facebook news feed full of their Asian friends who are like, who aren't getting this news, right? And it's, you have to very purposely follow news on AAPI communities to know what is going on about AAPI communities um, in the United States. And so for them, they're like, oh, I had no idea that, you, you know, Asian people were being harassed to this scale because of um, the pandemic. And I'm like, oh, well, I know because I'm literally seeing it hour after hour of so many things. And then with Stop AAPI Hate coming out with this large, you know, um, I think it's a study or, I mean, they're just collecting data and stories right now and saying like there's thousands literally just thousands of stories of people being harassed. And I think to your point about, well, it's really hard to quantify stories. And I think that's the challenge too, because, okay, some people have been verbally harassed. Some people have been harassed online. Some people have just been called like, oh, you're the coronavirus in passing when they're walking down the street or they've been physically attacked. So then how do we, do we put levels to like how harmful they are? Because it depends on the person too, you know, obviously physical harm, it can be very harmful, but another person can have their whole day or week ruined and be mentally harmed by just being called Kung flu or a coronavirus by walking down the street. So I think it is really difficult to quantify, but I also want to challenge that and say, well, why is there such a need for us to quantify these stories when the stories themselves have power um, to inform policy and to actually inform, okay, what can be done so that we could not have this happen in the future or even now. Are, are you just to stay with us with Susanna or, or Vivian, either one, mm -hmm. are you aware of specific resources? We talked about Stop AAPI Hate, but specific other kinds of resources or interventions that are happening at the community level where solidarity, where you're literally seeing solidarity being formed in the moment around these kind of around these kinds of issues. I mean again I, and I'm thinking also about, you know, post George Floyd, we often <clears throat> maybe not a, aware of the grounds of solidarity that are under our feet until something like this begins to happen. And then surprising, there are surprising configurations. I, I don't want to sugarcoat this, but I'm wondering if you're seeing um, some pushback or some tools and help that maybe wasn't as visible before. Yeah, so I think that there are um, a number of different policy uh, initiatives. So besides Stop API um, Hate Reporting Center, which I think had started initially, and did you have, have you had Russell Jung on COVID calls yet? No. I mean, he's excellent and amazing, but um, he had initially started that I think focused on California, um, and they've I think they've collected maybe 1,900 incidents, um, but because it kind of was one of the more visible. Um, uh, resources, I think they started then collecting, um, you know, stories from all over uh, the nation. And so I know that different, there are, um, from that data reporting side, you have people 
um, in different types of locations, um, starting up these initiatives. For instance, Susanna and I both know somebody um, who is starting something up in Denver. Um, I know that also, I believe um, the attorney general in um, New York had also kind of set up um, a sort of hate tracking program. And so you have, um, you have also at the policy level, this type of work. We're also partnered with UNESCO's um, uh, initiative I'm, trying, I'm bad at remembering acronyms, but it's there a kind of a coalition on um, sustainable cities. And part of that is thinking about um, racism as a sort of factor in uh, creating harm in cities. And so I know that they are also trying to deal with um, these issues and to work with municipalities to kind of locate solutions and to think about how do you kind of address racism. Um, Scott, I think that the way that you put it as far as these types of networks already existing, like the roots to um the roots to say anti-racism or community action uh having existed before coronavirus i think that's something that's really important and so like for instance some of the community organizers i know were already activists right so um anti-sewing squad is a group of i believe that they're kind of predominantly asian i know the leaders are asian american um that are um working together to create um to sew masks together and, and kind of provide that as a sort of resource to different um, community members, right? And also to kind of just be visible in this way to kind of position Asian Americans as not only just like passive uh, people who are receiving this sort of, um, you know, hatred, but also as people who are kind of stepping up and uh, forming these community relationships. Those people had already been activists. So like Valerie So, for instance, mm -hmm. a doc is a, a documentary maker who, you know, teaches at San Francisco State. Christina Wong, who started that, um, is a comedian who kind of does a lot of like, uh, satire around, um, you know, um, around racial issues and kind of how Asian Americans fit into that. So you have that. Um, and then you also have other types of community um, initiatives, such as um, in certain Chinatowns, you have um, patrols in which community members will, um, you know, go around to protect people. That's actually something very similar to what was going on in Japan um, when hate speech kind of became a bigger issue. You had a lot of Japanese people um, going around and patrolling so that uh, they could protect the um, Korean residents in this area, Kore Korean business owners from this kind of racist abuse. Um, and then you also have um, ways in which people are trying to protect each other, not necessarily uh, from say like a racist um, hate incident, but from some of the other layers of racism, such as for instance, um, businesses being, Asian businesses being stigmatized um, because of this sort of um, idea that they're associated with uh, contagion and risk, right? Um, and so you have different Asian American and Pacific Islander community groups, um, you know, coordinating, for instance, between, um, in the case of, say, Chinatown, uh, Chinese restaurants and elderly um, elders people's homes, right? And so, you know, basically you have two needs getting met. You have elderly people who need these types of resources and need meals and then, um, and also maybe want, uh, maybe need some sort of encouragement, kind of some sort of morale boosting with actually providing sort of financial resources back into Chinatown um, restaurants. So I think that you have many different layers. I, just to kind of say um, a little bit briefly about what I think is very harmful about this intensification of racism. And again, similar to, these anti-racist mobilization networks, not something starting because of COVID, had already been around, but maybe we're seeing it in specific types of ways that are more conspicuous. Um, I think that there are a lot of issues in terms of um, people's relationships and how that is affected by, um, you know, by this intensification of anti-Asian racism um, and, you know, how, how we're thinking about this as a community. Because when we think about, um, 
being at risk and being at risk um, of racism is not only ourselves, it's also our relationships to um, other people. And so like I think about my mom who um, is in her mid seventies. And so I'm already worried about her health issues, right? Um, but then, you know, she's talking about how um, she's thinking about, right now she's with my sister and is thinking about kind of going back home. Um, you know, she's thinking about say riding a train and she said, oh yeah, you know, like I, I've heard that you should disguise your face so that people can't tell you're Asian, right? And so like, it for me, that's very like sad, right? So she's worrying about her um, kind of being physically at risk. And then, you know, by extension, me and my sister are also thinking about this as well. So I think that um, social relationships are really part of, of how people are affected by this. It's not just like one person receives um, this kind of abuse and then it's just that one person, it's kind of a ripple effect. Um, another example is again, kind of the healthcare worker I had mentioned, um, you know, this is somebody who works like 24 hour shifts, right? Um, uh, helping, um, you know, people give birth. And then has to deal on top of that, being worried about getting um, harassed on the subway, right? And so I think that, you know, we sometimes we think about like healthcare workers, essential workers, and we say they're heroes, right? Um, many of them are also Asian American and Pacific Islanders, right? And so I think that um, as we kind of hold up these like national heroes, um, you know, we have to think about how many of them are also dealing with these other risks as well that make it very difficult to do this kind of work day in and day out when you also have to worry about you know, somebody, you know, cursing at you on the subway, right? So I think that's all part of that. Well, people must just feel just absolutely fed up. I mean, even those stories that you were just just describing, and I, and I know that this is, uh, you know, when you look at the history of immigrant communities in, in the United States, where they have often found themselves um, doing riskiest jobs, um, having the least amount of social support, um, working with the most difficult kind of transnational networks to try to keep you know family members coming and going and to then find in the midst of a pandemic themselves a special object of ridicule uh, i just want to spend a little more time with this because i i really even even the examples that you were giving uh vivian about your your mother um what's the remedy there it, can we talk a little bit more about you know the kinds of things that people are discussing this has to be more than just um, some sort of anti-racism training that happens at universities. This has to be a complete rethink about how we support immigrant communities across time, doesn't it? Oh, okay. I, 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 I'm sorry. I just, I'm so, I'm so, I know. Yeah, I'll speak briefly and then I'll pass the ball back to Susanna. Um, I think that um, your question that you're asking, and so I, I don't mean to um, you know, minimize the question, but in some ways it's kind of like, how do you how do you resolve racism? And I, I think we know, but we also don't know, right? Because um, like from a very basic level, uh, there's a reckoning of capitalism that has to happen uh, to do that. And a sort of redistribution of resources, I think that is part of that. Um, and that's, you know, I think we don't really have this political will in either party to kind of accomplish that. And so I think as much as, for instance, with Kamala Harris, um, Harris, um, and I always mispronounce her name, my friend reminds me of that, so I apologize. Um, with um, with her being uh, the uh, VP pick for the Democratic Party, I, I know there are a lot of people who are very excited that she's representing both uh, Black Americans and Asian Americans. But I think that there, that, beyond representation, we also have to think about policies and, and what are, types of policies are in place, right? And so when we think about like racism, 
um, it's, it's related to work policies. It's related to housing policies, right? Um, the conditions that uh, for racism are laid into these types of material conditions plus culture. Um, and that's in some ways, I think what Lisa Lowe, who's uh, you know, a very amazing cultural theorist is saying is that it's culture and structure and it kind of comes together and they mutually inform each other, right? And so like when we think about Orientalism in the past, um, it's, you know, it, it's kind of getting, um, it was uh, promoted through say Fu Manchu comics, right? Which were kind of very popular at this particular, uh, at a particular moment in time. But then it's also, you know, happening alongside different types of legislation, different types of policies that kind of zone different types of ethnic communities within like certain areas. And so I think that's part of it. Um, as far as how can we, how can people get support um, in a more sort of like logistical sense? I think that, and I think this is the problem is that, you know, people of color are always wanting structural change. We always want, um, I can't speak for all people of color, but I know, I know many um, want change and want these issues to get resolved, but we can't wait for them because there isn't that political will to resolve these issues. And so we often try to find these other ways of taking care of ourselves in, in that context. And so I think that, um, you know, often in, the, in those cases, it, it kind of falls back onto us to kind of create and cultivate these communities of care. Um, we actually have a zine that came out and um, another team member, Rachel Quo, is kind of part of this. She started um, an Asian American feminist collective that was based in New York, um, but I think it's maybe uh, has a broader spread now. And we actually have this zine called Care in the Time of Coronavirus. And we're thinking about what does care mean? Um, and care is also, of course, very political because, you know, just like I had mentioned with work and things like that beforehand, um, their material realities are related to that. So things like disability and how um, people who are already immunocompromised and things like that. So I think that, um, yeah, so logistically, I think it's about cultivating our networks, um, kind of reclaiming our humanity and having these relationships and supporting each other and also trying to find ways to kind of support our wellness and mental health. I think those are very concrete ways, but it certainly is no substitute for structural change. And I think it's unfortunate that we have to kind of find these particular methods to try to band-aid the problem rather than being able to expect that, um, you know, this can be resolved. I think, yeah, basically, you know, people who have been marginalized cannot wait. We have to kind of take care of ourselves, but it's unfortunate that that's how it has to be. I want to add on to that and just say that there's power in knowing your history. And I think, um, you know, AAPI history isn't very taught. I was not taught any AAPI history growing up. You know, a lot of that was me doing that on my own um, in my later years. And I think there is just real power in knowing that. And not just for myself as part of the AAPI community, but even if you don't identify as AAPI, but you have friends or you have people in your community or your neighbors are from the AAPI community, why not know about the history of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States? Because it is very rich. Um, you know, Yuri Kochiyama, she has done so many great things. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people know about her. And they and a lot of our history gets erased from a lot of very big moments in U.S. history. And I think knowing that the reason I say it's empowering is because, like Vivian has said earlier, these there are people and activists who have been doing work within the community pre-coronavirus. And they have done, they have tackled a lot of different issues. They still continue to do so. And coronavirus maybe just highlights a certain aspect of the activism that's going on right now. And so with that, you know, I would say if, if we want to eradicate racism um, as difficult as that may seem, you know, learn the history and 
learn about the people that you are with and learn about yourself and apply that and see how we can then use that to empower ourselves and use it as a tool to then move forward and tackle cases like this so that people, you know, our elderly aren't getting kicked in the face at train stations and, you know, families aren't getting stabbed because, you know, people are afraid that they're taking jobs and they're bringing over viruses. It's people, I feel like people think this is like this new thing that's happening, but it's like, no, if you look at history, it has happened over and over and over again. So if we want to learn from it, then we need to know this part of history as well. Well, obviously, I want to let everybody know listening that I would, there was no fee paid to Susanna to give a plug for, for history. I mean, it's such a powerful and authentic statement to make, and particularly in this moment. Susanna, I just want to stay with that for a second because um, this is also a moment in which scholars who are interested in, in the kinds of things we're all talking about kind of have to really be ready with the stories and with the materials for uptake, right? So can I just, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit, but I mean, what are some of those historical narratives that you think should be and can be deployed right now to not just push back on Donald Trump? I think we have to, he, I think he's a red herring here, but, but to really do some of this work you're talking about, which in part is about helping to build, as I understand it, solidarity in the moment for the AAPI community, but also to give other Americans of any background some something to work with to push back on that in their own communities. If they're hearing that kind of racism in their own barbershops or their own neighborhoods to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not at all the experience of Americans. And to have them, because we are, you're right, we're not taught that in K through 12 and we barely teach it at universities, frankly. What are some of the narratives or history that you think we should pick up and, and use right now? Wow, no that's such a good question. <laughs> I think, I mean, and Vivian, feel free to jump in and fill in any gaps. But I mean, automatically, I'm thinking you should know the Chinese Exclusion Act and what that means. Um, obviously, Japanese internment camps, and even just understanding the the amount of time of how long that went on, because it wasn't just a few years of Japanese folks being um, sent to internment camps, and then it was done. It's like, it, it was a whole process. Um, if you look at court cases, there's court case after court case after court case of people who have, um, of laws who have specifically subjected Asians um, to really just unjust procedures and, you know, looking up Angel Island. Um, what was Angel Island? We're, we, we're, we love Ellis Island, right? We love this symbolic thing of Ellis Island and seeing the Statue of Liberty and you're, you come as an immigrant and you start this new life. Well, Angel Island was a place where Asians were taken and deported and they stayed there sometimes separated from their families and it was really horrible. Um, and I think I'm blanking on the name and maybe Vivian, you can help me with this. It might've been Wong Kim Ark who, um, I for, I'm, I'm blinking right now because of course I was put on the spot, but the <laughs> there was a law where that said, if you are born on US soil, you have the right to citizenship. And that was a court case that was brought about from an Asian American um, or an Asian person, right, at that time. And they fought for that. And that is how, for, for example, someone like me with my Asian mother in the background, um, you know, who have Korean, Korean um, immigrant parents and me being born here, I was, I was able to have the right to citizenship. And so I think something like that is really empowering and it's emotional for me to think about because I'm like, wow, if I haven't had 
people in my past who have fought for things like this, then I wouldn't be here today. I want to have been able to have citizenship, which comes with so many privileges in itself. Um, and that has that has ripple effects down the line. So, you know, just I, I know I threw out a bunch out there and there's certainly ones that um, like the case with Juho and the public health um, context with the bubonic plague and them fighting for the fact that you can't just like quarantine communities quarantine a whole Chinatown in San Francisco just based on the fact that you think that they brought the, brought on the bubonic plague. Um, so those you're are just things that just, I'm throwing out. I imagine you probably just listed things that many people listening are not even familiar with. And so thank you for that and, and okay. very valuable resources. Vivian, did you want to mm -hmm. come in on this? And I've just put, just to, to tell everybody, mm -hmm. Vivian mentioned a zine um, about uh, um, the, the care, care, in the, uh, care in the time of coronavirus, yeah. Care in the time of coronavirus. And this is the link. It's up on screen now, asianmfeminism.org uh, slash resources. Vivian, did you want to pick up some of what um, Susanna there was talking about, sort of the tools of history and narrative to, to really use in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Susanna has mentioned so much. So I'll just kind of bring us back to one uh, case or two cases. So very briefly, I think when we think about Japanese American internment, um, in some ways it's very abstract for people, right? But then I think we have to think about what would it be like to be living somewhere and then to have to leave your home and lose all your belongings and even the materiality of that. I think that these are um, thinking in a more granular way about what these stories are rather than simply, you know, you had X number of people who this happened to. Thinking about like what that means, because I think that if many of us were in a disaster, for instance, in which we lost all of our belongings, it would be devastating. And so I, I, I think that type of specificity, um, returning to the lived experience, I think is very important. I think that's why history and sociology or sociology informed by history is I think um, really important. Um, the case I wanted to mention was something, Scott, you had mentioned at the top of this um, episode, and that is Vincent Chin. Um, and as you had mentioned, um, so Vincent Chin was killed, um, and it was in the context of, um, of uh, Detroit uh, experiencing uh, deindustrialization, kind of like uh, the loss of um, certain factories that were in the automobile industry, and the kind of this apparent rise of Japan economically and specifically in terms of automobiles. And the thing is, Vincent Chin was not uh, Japanese. Uh, not that it would have been, you know, um, okay or acceptable if he were. But I think that part of what mobilized so many people was precisely the fact that he was not Japanese, but then was killed, uh, murdered uh, because of what was happening, um, you know, around the U.S. and another. Um, in an Asian, another East Asian country. I think something that's very important in terms of thinking about that moment and why, um, and you know, it's kind of both like the sort of violence around that moment and how it led to this, this uh, you know, coalitional mobilization that happened afterwards um, with kind of Asian American pan um, organizing is if you think about what are the economic context of that. And, you know, this was kind of pointed out to me when I was a teaching assistant back in graduate school uh, for this amazing scholar, um, uh, Naomi Pike, uh, Paik, who actually just came out with a book about um, ban is I think it's bans, raids, walls, and sanctuary. It's about how we ended up where we are now in terms of immigration policy, um, in terms of exclusion that doesn't only affect Asian Americans, of course, also other many other communities. Though there are many undocumented Asian Americans, and so you know, in this course, and her teaching assistant, you know, a point that she brought up is that there was this narrative going on at that time in Detroit, right, about uh, 
Japan being the cause of job loss in uh, in this particular city, right? And that was also, you know, we often hear Trump saying similar things, right? But now with China. But what's going on as well is actually how there is this sort of um, corporate decision to actually, um, you know, change the location of their um, of their factories from Detroit to other cheaper areas, both in the U.S. and you know a abroad, right? And so there is that kind of context in which you know oftentimes things like job availability get kind of very nationalized and seen through this lens that can become very xenophobic, and crisis often gets seen through this lens. But then there's a sort of um, you know absence of this broader macro picture about what are the different types of decisions that. Um, right. were in play that led to these economic conditions, right? And I think, um, you know, like to give you an example again to this healthcare worker um, who actually is actually my friend, um, she was talking about how in this clinic, um, they were not allowed to, um, they weren't allowed to both receive federal funding and tell patients about the existence of abortion as an option, right? So not even performing abortions within their clinic, but simply telling people that that was an option. They could not get both. And so they mm -hmm. felt that affected their quality of care. And then they ended up, you know, not taking that federal funding so that they could provide, you know, adequate quality of care. Um, the result of that, and this was before the pandemic, is that you know it led to the clinic being very economically precarious you know as a, like when the pandemic hit right and so we have to think not only about you know how the pandemic is shaping lives but it's very much rooted in a lot of these different political decisions that have been ha happening um the sort of retrenchment on social services all of this is a context to why it is that you have so many people right now who are suffering economically who are, of course, not only Asian American, but in some ways, this economic suffering that many, many people are feeling, you know, many white people are feeling, many communities of color are feeling, and then the kind of resentment that comes out of that is very much like in relation to, you know, how our government chooses to spend its money and how it has failed people. So I think that is a context in which we have to learn about. Um, it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to learn about that because there's so much hostility around it. But I think if people knew this history, maybe we could. I think a lot of these questions around race um, could be better understood if we also understood the socioeconomic kind of foundation for everything. I have a much better understanding now after this hour talking with you about why and how you've designed your study the way you have, because you have been very careful, both of you, in talking about it, that you need to capture both simultaneously the structural elements, which become the ground for inequality and for racism, but also to simultaneously really dive into the cultural elements of how community and family are experiencing this and how racism actually works. And I, and I, I haven't really done a survey on it but just a brief summary, I just gave us. I'm really impressed with the fluidity in which you go back and forth and actually show how racism is also rooted in, um, you know, deeper structures of inequality, particularly economic inequality. And I guess one reaction that I have to that, one thought I have to that, and again, not, not to give him too much credit, but, you know, Donald Trump's last speech before the 2016 election was in, it was in Michigan, it was in Battle Creek, Michigan. I mean, 
it's not lost on him that the key voters that he needs to reach to win in 2020 are also in states that do have, and California is out of the picture for him, but some of these other states, particularly Rust Belt states, auto manufacturing states, it's not that long ago that this anti-Asian sentiment was a live wire of racist politics in those places. He's aware of that. Um, he may not be aware of it at the level at which he could write it write it down and say, this is the talking point. But I think at a deeper level, that is that connection, as I see it, between the structural inequality and, and the way the racism is deployed in the midst of this in the midst of this pandemic. We're, we're almost up on time, and I just want to um, give you each one more sort of round on this. Uh, first of all, correct anything I just said, because I, I don't want to do any damage to your study, but I really just wanted to underline again how impressive it is that you're working in both of those different domains. Yeah, I think that okay. as far as our study, um, something that's very important for us, um, and you know, some people have said, you know, like like to kind of push this more so that um, it's clear. But I think that's something that's very core to um, how we envision the study is thinking about uh, coronavirus is not just one thing, right? And the way that a lot of people have been talking about it is there are two pandemics: coronavirus and racism. But it's not just two; it's it's maybe three. Um, and you know, it's, it's probably more than three, but I think that we can think broadly about how you have this economic issue, you have racism, and you have these health issues, right? And how they are interlocking. So just as many of us are familiar with the concept of intersectionality, which is like interlocking forms of social inequality that inform each other, such as like, you know, being a black lesbian um, woman is going to be different than, you know, a white man from upper middle class background, right? Um, how those experiences are different and interlocking. Um, and so similarly, we want to look at how these are all kind of related to each other. They're not just simply discrete. And, you know, for instance, you know, we didn't get to talk about our family study that much, but why, one of the reasons why we're looking at family is because when you look at, you know, past data, um, the risk of um, mental health issues and the risk of intimate partner violence and family violence is, um, are both economic and racism. So communities that are experiencing racism have a higher rate of also kind of having, um, you know, certain types of uh, violence within the home, right? And so if both of these are risk factors, um, how is it that, you know, different families are affected by this? And we already have research showing uh, just broadly that, um, you know, domestic violence kind of spikes during uh, disasters and crisis. And so I think that's part of um, the groundwork for that. And um, I think that uh, similar, and I, I kind of forget what I was saying, but um, I think similarly, when we go back to Donald Trump, um, we have to think about, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I think many people agree that he's not the most eloquent person. Um, I, I would say also George W. Bush was not the most eloquent person, but there's a utility, right, and a function to that lack of eloquence, right? And so I think that it really doesn't matter to some extent if Trump thinks, well, I mean, it matters in the sense that like, as far as he makes decisions, but in some ways it matters less whether or not Trump thinks that coronavirus is a China virus, right? Or Kung flu. It's more about what does that do for his political platform and what types of, right. um, exactly. what types of moves is he able to make? What types of uh, emotions is he able to mobilize, right? And work off of. And I think that it's that's part of that right and so i um that i think that's stoking and that kind of what the utility of that is why he would be doing that um and how that and i think that you know i was i, I spoke to HuffPost about this a while ago i you know very early on I, I made a comment about how part of the function of that is to um sidestep the fact that this administration has handled this pandemic in like the worst possible way possible which is very angering right and so 
it didn't have to be this way. And just as how like, you know, you're a historian of disaster, disasters are not natural, right? And this certainly is not a natural disaster. You know, there are biological threats, there are natural hazards, and that is part of reality. And also kind of part of our relationship as humans, nature and animals. Um, but for this to happen the way that it did in the US is certainly not, it wasn't destined, right? And you can see the evidence of that, the fact that people in other countries are able to kind of, to somewhat extent, to some extent, be back to their normal lives, right? I know of people in different countries who are experiencing that. So I think really thinking about um, what benefits Trump and this administration to kind of keep harping on this idea of a China virus, I think that's something that we need to think about. So we're just about up on, on time. I wanna give um, just a, we'll do a quick quick final round here. I wanna hear from uh, Susanna about your podcast, Global Caveat. And uh, could you say just a, a, a plug for that? And then Vivian, as we're, as we're wrapping up, maybe <laughs> you could just tell us a little bit about um, what your sort of broader ambition is when the study is done, what kind of uptake you'd like to see in policy or other domains. So, so Susanna, you first, how do we find this podcast? Yeah, Scott, thanks for uh, giving me the space to do the plug. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like mine and my colleague who um, is, is an, has her MPH from NYU. Um, it was, it's kind of our baby because it was our side project, we were like, hey, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in global health, but people often ask me, what is global health? What does that mean? Is it like public health? And we were like, you know what, let's, um, let's just do a podcast and bring on people from different backgrounds. So they could, we've had people who are in stem cell research, who study caves, um, just really a wide variety. And they come on and we connect it to, okay, how does this actually like Vivian was saying, intersect with health. And what does this mean in terms of um, human health at not just individual level, but as a community and population? So we did it for about a year and the response that we got was great. And we really try to focus on talking to people who are on the ground doing the work, who can speak about that experience rather than people who are more like up top, you know, and who delegate and don't really go out into the field anymore. Um, Cause we, we feel they're a little bit more disconnected. So. You know, that's what we've done. And actually pretty exciting news is that we are pending nonprofit status because we have expanded our scope. And so for about a year we were doing podcasts, but not, people have been coming to us. They're like, are you gonna do get togethers? Are you doing community gatherings? Maybe we could all volunteer together. And you know, Diana and I are like, oh, okay. If that's what you want, then why not? And so we are actually filing, finishing up filing the paperwork for a nonprofit status and we will having a launch party for it, a virtual launch party. Um, Right. in the next few months to um to kind of you know show people okay what does it mean for a nonprofit what kind of stuff will we be putting on beyond the podcast so yeah well that's great and and thank, congratulations on that and i know that many people who listen to COVID calls will be interested to watch for that global caveat podcast okay great so um vivian i'm just going to give you the last word to take us out here today mm -hmm. what is a yeah so I, recovery look like where does this uh this study need to go Mm, okay. Yeah. I so just I just want to kind of give um, a plug. Well, I guess this whole thing was a plug, but just to kind of give some concrete numbers about what we're envisioning pending funding. <laughs> um, right now, you know, all the grad students are donating their time, so I'm very you know grateful to them for that. Um, so we are we have the study planned as um, a longitudinal study, both in terms of surveys and interviews. Um, right now, for each study, the labor and the family piece, we have about like 200. 
um, or 250 interviews per uh, study, which we're going to collect um, or informants, and then we're going to interview them again longitudinally about a year later. So we're, our yield is going to be, if, if it is possible, like 900 interviews. Um, and our surveys also, we're, we're trying to um, also run these um, surveys of a thousand uh, respondents at each point of time. So 4,000 total. This is like a ton of labor. Um, not, it's a ton, well, it, sorry, <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. It's a ton of labor, but it's also a ton of data. And um, part of it was because, you know, like we, we had this pushback about how, how do we kind of seek to explain these different categories if we're not necessarily interviewing like 30, 40 people each one. So I was like, okay, let's try doing that. Um, but I think that there, we also recognize that, like, what are we going to do with 900 interviews, right? And so I think that we we definitely want to make this uh, public facing at some point. We're not exactly sure how. Um, as I mentioned, we're setting up this advisory board. So part of that uh, discussion is going to be about how is it that we can provide um, this uh, data, right, in a way that both protects the privacy of our informants, but also can be useful to people so that people can use it. And I think that, um, you know, I, I say this to the team, like, I um, I very much want to try to transform the academy um, from like the little position I have so that we're more equitable, that we're more collaborative, though, of course, I've been socialized within this space. And so it was always like this kind of like fight, you know, of like the id and, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that maybe this is where we can start going as far as what we can do with qualitative research, uh, quantitative research, you know, really, um, you know, creating these um, sources of information that can be used by multiple people. And I know that, you know, when we were collaborating with, um, when we were talking about these collaborations with Pacific Islander groups, um, one of the things that was mentioned to me is that uh, there was there would be a need for us to also mentor young Pacific Islander researchers, right? And to kind of help build that next generation. So I think that that's also part of it, right? I think that um, our studying of these social issues is not uh, separate from the fact that we are a feminist, um, you know, researcher research team that is, um, except for our, our uh, PI, co-PI, Jason Beckfield, is all AAPI. We're all junior scholars, right? And I think that we're kind of reclaiming this, this ability to um, be part of this next generation and also prepare the next generation too, which is why it's so exciting to have an undergraduate um, involved. And, and I told her, you know, like, um, you are giving us a service, the fact that you're, you have these like social networks that allow us to have access to these communities that if I went to, you know, um, Shoe City and just went up to people and said, hey, can I interview you? It wouldn't be the same, right? And so I think recognizing that people bring a lot to the table, even if they're not like a full professor, um, that's part of that academic piece. And I think that um, what I hope, um, I mean, again, like, I think it's very hard from the position of academia um, you know, we often say like policy relevant and translating to that. And certainly our partnership with UNESCO is part of that. Um, I think even thinking beyond that is also about pushing the imagination uh, for us as well as for the next generation. And um, I think that's kind of what we can contribute and education is kind of very uh, fuzzy sometimes in that way. Um, but what my hope is, is that we have the tools um, that to better understand what racism is and how it is related to disaster. So that, you know, I think right now with the sort of intensification of anti-Asian racism, that is the focus, right? And thinking about racism as these verbal attacks and abuse. Um, I want us to kind of develop a much richer understanding of what racism is and how it affects all facets of life, um, even if it doesn't seem immediately apparent, right? And as part of that, thinking about AAPI, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, as including um, many populations that have often been ignored, right? I think that that's kind of what I wanna to bring to the study and what I wanna kind of put out uh, publicly so that 
we have, you know, next generations and other scholars kind of even laterally can have these tools to better understand, you know, uh, life. You've been listening to COVID calls. I just want to remind everybody on Monday, we're going to have uh, paleontologist Ken Lacavara and primatologist Isabel Benke Izquierdo to talk about doing field science and primatology and paleontology in the midst of a pandemic. And I want to really thank my guests, Vivian Shaw and Susanna Park. I've learned a lot in this hour and, um, you know, best of luck with all of the research that, that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on COVID calls today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank I'm gonna you. send you also the website so that you can like share that with uh, folks. So um, if people wanna learn more oh, about absolutely. the study, they can, yeah, they can they can take a look at that. And also if anyone wants oh, to join the study, they're, they're able to, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sure. Absolutely. So you can join COVID calls any weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you back on Monday.